You probably heard that the great John Wesley uh, used to say, apparently, that the world was his parish. Now, I wouldn't want to bracket my itinerant wanderings under that same heading, but uh, that's what he said. There are cynical historians who reckon that he, was, he went on the trail a great deal partly because he had a nagging wife. And certainly, I wouldn't wish to have a bracket in that kind of connection. But I do consider my part of my ministry is I, I spend half my time going to Anglican churches to try to make them understand what the free evangelical world is like. And I spend the other half of my time preaching in free evangelical world to try to tell them what the Anglican church is like. And this morning I was preaching at Dronfield Baptist Church where I had a very happy time. And I wanted to remind them, uh, they knew it was Palm Sunday, they recognised Palm Sunday. Free church often uh, pinches things in the Church of England and uh, they, they recognised what this day was. But I did want to remind them uh, that they could go back and find a prayer book, blow the dust off and then read 1662 and find Palm Sunday. I challenge you to get your 1662 prayer book and find Palm Sunday because you won't find it. Try as you will. Search as you will. It doesn't exist in the prayer book. Today is the Sunday next before Easter. And the, the idea being in Holy Week, every day we read from the Gospel the narrative of our Lord going to the cross because it is so absolutely central and for the well-being of the church vital. But, and the experts here will know, uh, the Palm Sunday narrative does come in the prayer book. And the Sunday it comes in the prayer book is Advent Sunday. And the Advent is not just sort of the countdown to Christmas. The Advent is a remain, remain preparing for the return of Jesus as well as preparing for Christmas. And therefore the gospel narrative of Palm Sunday is there because you see the kingship of Jesus shown then was how he came in humility. One day he will come in majesty. One day he'll be seen to be king, but he came first of all in humility. And the symbol of it was his entering into Jerusalem uh, as a king on a donkey. Would you like to contrast Jesus? It was almost a charade. It was almost ridiculous. A king on a donkey coming into his kingship. Contrast that with uh, Barack Obama who brings, was it 50... Uh, Car, cars uh, carefully bulletproof from the uh, United States uh, flown across so that he might enter correctly. That's all right. I don't blame Barack Obama for being safe. But what a difference between that kind of entry and Jesus. And yet, you see, I would submit to you tonight that whether or not you think a new world order has begun because of last week, whether you think we have now started the comeback and we've turned the corner, you may or you may not. I want to say to you that because of the king entering into Jerusalem, a new order did begin. Indeed, in John 12, when Jesus talks on that theme on the dead, Palm Sunday, he talks about now is the judgment of this world, and the word for judgment is crisis. Now, why all that introduction to John 16? Well, some of you will know because you were here last week, that rather unexpectedly, I did one last week, I got a little mini-series last week, and this week... And I wanted to give subtitles to the titles given to me. And the subtitle last week was The Church Under Attack. And my subtitle for this week is The Church On The Attack. And the remarkable thing is that at the moment when the church was most under attack was the moment when it would begin to attack again. 
And we looked last week at the remarkable thing that ex-Archbishop George Carey can comment the church in the West needs to learn from the church in the Sudan. Alive, vibrant, growing, even though it's under extreme persecution and we in our comfort haven't seemed to find out how to do it. And I pointed out to you last week that in John 16 verse 3, you get a remarkable, 16 verse 2, you get a remarkable picture of Saul of Tarsus under two heads. A time is coming, said Jesus with disciples, when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. When was that? Well, Saul of Tarsus supremely thought he was doing service to God by getting rid of Christians. And then the day came when he was converted and a lynch mob wanted to get rid of him. They set an ambush to kill him. Why? Because they thought they were doing service to God. But here's where it leaks into tonight. When did Saul of Tarsus first appear in the scripture narrative? Look, it's a very careful writer in the Acts of the Apostles. And he suddenly says at the end of, uh, of Acts chapter 7 that uh, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's it. He brings him in. And why did they lay their clothes? Because they just finished stoning Stephen. The first great Christian martyr. The moment when they were on the attack and at the moment when they were on the attack and they'd killed the man who had the greatest vision in the early church, something was starting in the heart of a young man named Saul. The moment of the church's greatest weakness, things were happening. And of course that was Palm Sunday or that was Holy Week. At the moment Jesus went to the cross and it looked as if the enemy had won triumphantly. What does Paul later say about it in Colossians 2? 15, this is the message of Good Friday. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was actually Good Friday. It was the day of triumph. The moment when the enemy seemed to have done its worst, that's what happened. And so Peter on the day of Pentecost could preach, this man, that is Jesus, God handed over to you, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Incidentally, who was Peter talking to on that day? Thousands of people. How many of them had nailed Jesus to the cross? Not one. I am sure there were no Roman soldiers there. Not one single one. But he could say, you, you, and he could he would preach here tonight, he would say, you, you, including me. But you see, it was by God's set purpose. It was the moment of our greatest weakness claimed the greatest strength. The King Jesus only once wore a crown, and it was a crown of thorns. He only once had the title King, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, over his strange throne of a cross. So, here is a promise, and it comes to us today. It's the promise that through the Holy Spirit, pointing to this Jesus, here's our Lord, it's our last little series on the last words of Jesus. Here is our Lord pointing to what will happen when he's gone. Now, if you want to be pedantic, they weren't the last words of Jesus. The very last word of Jesus is in Acts 1 verse 8. You shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power and you'll be power to be witness. Look back to chapter 15, verse 27. The Spirit of Truth, verse 26, will testify, will witness about me. And you also must witness. And the Greek word is a word for martyr. So the power of the Spirit comes to enable us to witness. And I want for the rest of my sermon this evening to suggest to you three ways in which the power of the Spirit is abroad. Now I hope you do believe in the power of the Spirit. There are times when we kind of put it in boxes. Years ago, I remember the height of the charismatic movement, which has left good and bad around. At the height of that movement, a lady came to Fullwood Parish Church, and after I'd preached, she came to me and said, Vicar, do you see miracles happening in this church? Oh, I said, yes, I do, every week. And her eyes began to sparkle with anticipation. Oh, I said, yes, people who believe the gospel, and they come from death to life, and they're ready for heaven, and their glories are changed. And she seemed rather unexcited about that prospect. Didn't seem to excite her at all. I knew what kind of miracle she wanted. But apparently the greatest miracle of all, the power to give eternal life, didn't seem all that important. I wasn't surprised she never came back. Somehow that sort of power was not what she wanted. Now there are other powers, don't let, get me wrong. God does sometimes does extraordinary things even in our day. But the power that really matters is the power of the Spirit. And this is what excites me still in my itinerant ministry. It's the power to console, the power to convict, and the power to convince. It's the power to console. There we've been in verse 5 of chapter 16. Here is a contrast, the bane of self-centeredness and the blessing of Christ-centeredness. Of course they were full of grief. That's why these chapters have started. Chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples had been told our Lord was leaving and they were grief-stricken. But they were thinking about themselves. Don't we all, basically? Here's a little test for you. For those who drive cars, as most of you do, the next time you're on the motorway, as I see it very often, you get on the, on the motorway and suddenly it flashes on the, uh, up there, the, the sign flashes, incident. I don't know why accidents have become incidents now. Accidents were once accidents, now accidents are incidents. Incident ahead. What is your first reaction? Come on. If you're a very pious, lovely Christian, your first reaction is, oh, those poor people in that accident. If you're like me, your first reaction is, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be... <laughs> How dare they have an accident down there? I'm going to be late. Because you see, it's all me. Which, of course, is what sin is, basically me. And I want to be in the frame. I want to be in the centre. And these disciples weren't thinking of the glory of Jesus. They were just thinking, how we go on? How are we going to cope? Now, the lovely thing is Jesus meets their need by promising them what I call the blessing of Christ-centeredness. Look, if I don't go away, verse 7, the counsellor, the comforter, the paraclete, the one who comes to strengthen you will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And, of course, the proof of the pudding was in the eating. The disciples were infinitely better when Jesus had gone than when he was alive. They were divided and weak when the Spirit came and dwelt within them. Life was changed. The promise of Ezekiel, centuries before, had now come true. Uh, and that what once looked so desolate was now full of life and hope because they had been cleansed and the Spirit had come. And the new era would begin and the Spirit would change them. Instead of me being the centre, 
Christ is. Power to console. And the greatest consolation, comfort that comes from the comforter is the strength to go out. We shall never be effective in our Christian witness so long as we're always thinking about ourselves. How am I getting on? What do people think about me? Are these things in church going my way? It's me, me, me. Which is basic sinfulness. Power to console. Secondly, power to convict. When the Holy Spirit comes, says verse 8, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness and judgment. Now, you, you get the thrust of this. If you understand, that word convict has various readings in the New Testament. Here's one of them. In Ephesians 5, verse 11, Ephesians 5, 11, Paul says about Christians, we should have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, that word expose is the same word here as convict. And how do we convict the world of that unfruitful works of darkness? By wagging a finger of reproof? By sending hot letters to the press saying how much we complain? By putting things on their blog or Facebook, which I know nothing of at all, but that's a word I picked up from, uh, from the press. Whatever you do, you, know, you want to demonstrate that you are angry about them. Is that it? No, we expose them by being radically different. And when the church and the individual Christian is different, we help to expose. Oh yes, there is a place for criticism. There is a, a place for writing letters. There is a place for doing something. But basically, we expose it by what we are. And my main thesis tonight is that when the Spirit fills the church, the church begins to impact the world. So the greatest need of the world today is not all these important people meeting last week, important though it was, and we pray for them, but the church coming alive in the power of the Spirit. So when that happens, then... See what he will do. The Spirit will convict of sin. Now you see, the, the whole idea of sin, people probably sort of basically think is there, but not for them. And we actually are very happy to see what's wrong with the world. There was, apparently years ago, before my time, there was a, a, a correspondence column in the Times which went on and on under the title of What's Wrong with the World? And apparently G.K. Chesterton, you've come across that great name, uh, he was a very rotund Roman Catholic, was G.K. Chesterton, who always, always said, insults never hit you if they're so patently absurd. G.K. Chesterton, if anybody calls me a thin Protestant, it doesn't bother me one little bit. It is so patently ridiculous. But some of the criticisms are, do hurt. Anyway, G.K. Chesterton wrote the last letter. And so he la wrote the last letter to finish this column, and he wrote to the Times, what's wrong, sir? What's wrong with the world? I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Which, of course, is exactly right. What's wrong with the world? I am. And only the Spirit can begin to convict me. You see there in verse 9, convict in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. Is that what you think sin is? I guess we could all drop a list of people who, for whom we would say, if we believe in hell, as I take it we do, if we take Scripture seriously, there are certain kinds of people we wouldn't mind seeing there. And though I may, I may squirm when somebody's been through terrible, terrible times 
and they say, not knowing what they say, I hope they rot in hell, I can understand why they say it. Sometimes it's a more genuine expression than the sort of rather vapid expression of I don't blame them and all that. Often that's what they really feel like. But you see, when the Bible and the Spirit begins to work, he convicts of sin. The chief sin is, I don't believe in him. It's recognising that sin is me. I know this gentleman who's now in glory wouldn't mind using the illustration because he asked me to use it at his funeral service. This gentleman, the only person I've ever known in my all years of ministry, who rang up one Monday morning, I've been in church on Sunday night, he rang up and said, Vicar, can I come and see you? I need to be converted. Nobody else has ever said that over the phone to me on a Monday morning. Try it tomorrow. I should be delighted, excited. Anyway, he did. I want to be converted. And the story hinged. He was a man who came back, in a sense, to church. And he insisted. He sat in a pew somewhere down there. And I was preaching on David and Bathsheba. And he insisted every time I got the bit in the Bible which says, you are the man, I pointed straight at him. He was quite convinced that my finger went right in his direction. And so he said, I need him, I must come and see you. Now, he hadn't committed the sin of David and Bathsheba. Nothing to do with that at all. It was just by the Spirit's strange work, even through the wagging of, of my finger, God was saying, you are the man. So watch out. <laughs> But you see, to him, suddenly, and he wanted it to send his funeral service, he came alive because the Spirit of God took the Word of God through a preacher of God's Word to convict him of the sin of not believing in Jesus. So you see, when Jesus said, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, we did. If we turn our back on him, if we decide we know better than God, if we go our own way, we think to heaven... We don't believe in him. That is a chief sin. Convict of sin and of righteousness. Righteousness, Jesus said, because I'm going to the Father. And you'll then know that I was right. And that people who uh, oppose me will recognize that I am right because I've risen and ascended and gloriously gone back to God. And also, convict in regard to righteousness because we will begin to realize that righteousness is not earned by our own initiative. I'm just beginning to pre prepare my Sunday after Easter sermon. I'm here again on Sunday morning after Easter, uh, and I'm pre just preparing a sermon for that. And I'm tempted to do it on what I call gospel grammar, on uh, the indicative and the imperative of the gospel. Now, I do hope you still do grammar. We live in a world when grammar has rather died out, and... Uh, You've heard me say it before, I am starting a society for the preservation of the semicolon. If anybody wants to join my society for the preservation of the semicolon, I'll be glad to have you. But grammar, what I mean by gospel grammar, the indicative is what we are, the imperative is what we do, and the in, implicit view of many people is that you get to heaven, you do what you should do, and then you get what you get. Whereas the gospel turns it on its head. And says you are by the grace of God what you are. And then you do what pleases him. In the theological phrase you become what you are. Ponder that great phrase but it's true. That is the indicative becomes before the imperative. And righteousness is not my earning it in regard to righteousness. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to heaven. That's the only way you'll be right before me. That takes a lot of 
gospel work. It takes a lot of spirits breaking down. And judgment, verse 11, in regard to judgment, he convinced the world of judgment. Because, you see, it's topsy-turvy, says Jesus. The prince of this world, that's his word for Satan, stands now condemned. I am going to the cross and I'm going to triumph. I'm going to win, says Jesus, without any hesitation, hours before his death. Please don't feel, I feel sometimes, we're losing. Numbers decline, the church as a whole, things are going wrong. Uh, preaching at Johnfield Baptist Church this morning, I enjoyed enormously. If you preach at Johnfield Baptist Church, you park your car in Sainsbury's car park, right opposite the Baptist Church. And it just, just reminded me, I saw hordes of people flocking into Sainsbury's. I felt like saying, really, I come across here, I'm preaching across the road, but I didn't have the courage to do it. And then coming back, I tried to get back, all the people charging out to Derbyshire because the sun was shining. Um, it, it looks like we're, we're inconsequential. We're a tiny minority. We're just the remnant. And yet, in a strange way, God is saying through Jesus, when the Spirit begins in power to convict, he will recognize that the enemy is defeated. We are winning. God give us grace to believe it. Listen. When Jesus stands before Pilate, we'll be reading that no doubt this week in the Holy Week narrative. When Jesus stands before Pilate, who is judging whom? Well, Pilate was quite sure he was judging Jesus. Uh, yeah, I've got the power to, get to put you under a cross or release you. But that's all wrong. Jesus was judging Pilate. About a half an hour ago, we said the creed. And only two people exist in the creed apart from Jesus. Only two human beings. Born of the Virgin Mary, that's lovely. She's there. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. He washed his hands. He said, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And yet for hundreds, two thousand years, Christians in different ways, in different language, have said, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's being judged. Ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we think we decide about Christ. The most important thing is, what does he decide about us? Power to convict, power to console, and finally, power to convince. That comes out in verses 12 to 16. And it's a very interesting passage, rather complicated passage, to be honest. But for, a few, for just for a few minutes, we'll, we'll tackle it. For what I want to suggest about these verses is that Jesus is saying... When the Spirit comes to convince the Christian church about the truth, then the power to convict the world will happen. A church which has lost its moorings, which doesn't know what to believe, which is uncertain about everything, is never going to make any impact. The world just laughs at us. But when the church really is convinced by the Spirit of the truth, what an impact. What truth? Two things. The truth about the cross and the truth about the Christ. Now, notice what, Paul, what Jesus says in verse 12. Things I can't say to you now, but when the Spirit comes, you will understand these things, for he'll guide you into all truth. Uh, do remember, in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter preached and Paul preached, inspired by the Spirit, they could tell us a lot more about Jesus than we even get from the Gospels. Uh, this is part of the Spirit's work. And he will implement the works of, of the words of Jesus. He will complement them. The truth about the cross, 
and the truth about the Christ. I don't know what you make of verse 13b, at the end of the verse. He will tell you what is yet to come. Now, our first interpretation, well, that's the future yet. He'll tell us all about what's going to happen at the end of the age. And I, that's true, of course. And you will find, in the New Testament, elsewhere, a word about the end of the age. We're having, during Bagot's Thanksgiving service here on Wednesday morning, and the family have asked to read from 1 Thessalonians 4, which is spirit-inspired truth about what will happen at the end. And that I believe to be the only sure word we have about the end. It comes from the Spirit of God. But I don't think that's what verse 13 primarily means. Yet to come. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. And only when, he, when the Spirit had come will they fully understand what the message of the cross meant. When they were at the cross, they were bewildered, they were lost, they ran away. But then it dawned on them. You can find this in John chapter 2 when Jesus talks about the temple of his body being destroyed and in three days rise again. And it says they didn't understand it then. They only understand so that after the event. So you see the challenge is the truth about the cross is absolutely vital. It's the heart of our gospel. It's the centre of our life. You can't have too much about the cross. Sometimes you hear complaints about people who complain, we're always talking about the cross. Of, of course we are, unashamedly. It's the cross by which we come to faith. It's the cross that challenges us sanctification. It's the cross that drives us out into, into service. And the truth about the cross, where God's wrath was poured upon his only beloved son, the whole teaching of the New Testament, that spirit inspired. And we need the truth about the cross, but also the truth about the Christ. You see verse 14? He will take what is mine and make it known to you, and he will bring glory to me. When I was uh, vicar here, we had for eight years my good friend Gavin McGrath, our Australian... I do apologise. American. So the Australian is on my mind at the moment. And our American colleague was here for eight years. He, he was always very strict on the theology of hymns. The only snag was... Some of my favourites, Gavin would sort of look at them and say, do you really believe that to be true, Philip? I said, well, I rather like the hymn. Well, there we are. But one of the choruses we sometimes sang, Gavin McGrath helped me to, I always sung it correctly, I will not sing theological nonsense. Uh, and you know the, the, the song that starts, Father, we love you, glorify your name in all the earth. Perhaps you've forgotten that. It was new about 25 years ago. Uh, and the second word, Jesus, we love you, we glorify your name in all the earth. It then gets to glorify your name, then gets spirit, we love you. And I always sing, glorify his name in all the earth. For I never find the spirit in the New Testament glorifying himself. He's always pointing to Jesus. And if anybody asks me, is the spirit at work in this church, that church? I say, what do they make of Jesus? What do they make of it? How much is he in the centre? That'll tell me whether it's a spirit-filled church. So whether or not you worry about singing, Father, uh, Spirit, we love you, glorify his name in all the earth, that's the truth of it. His job is to glorify Jesus. And when the Spirit begins to convince us of the truth about who he is, all the wonderful rest of the Revelation of the New Testament, the uniqueness of Christ, there is nothing in Paul or Peter's writing that contradict what Jesus said, but they complement it and give us the fullness of it. And then you see, 
when that happens, Christ becomes more real, more wonderful, and we shall go out with greater power. I want to finish where I began. Some with longer memories here will remember, I once preached from a platform down there, I remember. We had a thing called Alpha and Omega. It was a kind of, you won't believe this, some of you, it was a kind of song and dance routine. It really was quite something for Fullwood Parish Church. We, we, we survived it. No, it was great. It was actually great. <laughs> we went on tour with it to one session. Uh, but um, I was, they knew there was only one non-negotiable. You could do anything you like with the service, but you couldn't get rid of the sermon. Hacking is awkward about sermons. You have to have a sermon. So they had to put me in. So I was given the task of pretending to be Peter on the day of Pentecost. And I had to stand up there and pretend I was Peter. I wasn't allowed any Bible because he wouldn't have had a Bible in front of me. That's fair enough. I wasn't allowed any notes because the producer thought, I don't know how she knew, but they were, he didn't have any notes on the day of Pentecost, so I wasn't allowed any notes. And I couldn't quote the Apostle Paul because he'd not yet been converted, but I did actually forget. <laughs> and I did quote Paul and I said, I'm Peter, so I'm a prophet, so I don't know what he's going to say. Anyway, that was, that's how I got away with that one. But in fact... I actually learnt something. See, why I go back to the beginning. When I prepared that, wasn't the sermon, that Peter talk, I thought, now, why am I, this is Peter, why am I so different from what I was six weeks ago? Six weeks ago, I met a girl who, t- who told me I was one of Jesus' disciples and I swore at her. I said, never, ever, ever. Now, I'm standing up in front of thousands of people and I'm preaching with conviction. And I know, because I know the stories end, there are thousands converted. What's the difference? Oh, well, uh, quite straightforward, isn't it? I've met the risen Jesus and I've been filled with the Spirit. And so the Spirit has made Jesus real to me and I can now do what I could never do before. And friends, you don't have to be a preacher for that to be true. You don't have to stand on a platform there for that to be true. If I have met the risen Jesus, and I believe that he died for my sins, then invite him into my life and the Spirit comes to take over. And I can do it. And then, you see, we will make an impact in the world out there when we know the truth and we live it out by God's grace. And it's my prayer that for all of us tonight we should discover afresh the wonder of a spirit who when the church is on the attack, when everything seems to be at its worst, will send us out with a sense of victory. I, I dashed last Sunday from Birkenhead where I, I, I had a weekend's ministry in the, an urban priority area church which is under attack but doing a good job, Chris Slater, one of our lads, is curate there, and, and things, are, things are happening. And the, the vicar there said to me, he said, the church I was in before, a very different place in the south of England, we used to sing a lot of the choruses, but they don't know up here. Uh, sort of, there were other old choruses, and uh, he quoted one, which I haven't sung for a long time. It went to a popular tune, and uh, it, the, the line that I want to quote is, send a revival, start the work, in me. And he said, you know, I pray for that. I long for it. But I, I've got to stop thinking about will, will God work in that lot? Start the work in me. And whether or not you know that song, it doesn't matter. 
But we do, we are going to sing in a minute about revive your church, your breath of life, come sweeping through us and start your work in me. Let me pray.